It is an open question as to whether or not Omicron is going to be the live virus vaccination that everyone is hoping for. We've endured COVID for two years. Are we now in the endgame? Dr. Fauci says we might be. The US president's key advisor spoke at the virtual Davos meeting with other global experts seeking a way out of the pandemic. Omicron will sweep the world. It may hopefully sweep out other variants, eliminate Delta. We will get to a point this year where populations around the world either have been infected or had the benefits of vaccination, and, and we will get closer to that equilibrium with COVID. The world has made huge strides against the virus. Two years ago, we had a population of 7.7 .7 billion people with zero immunity to this virus. Now, more than 50% of the world's population has received two doses. And this is further strengthened with now the rapid also immunity being built up by natural infection. So we're in a different space. On this episode of Radio Davos, we hear from top global experts, scientists, public health leaders and vaccine makers, explaining where things stand on the virus and what we can hope for now. For two years, we've all worked literally, you know, seven days a week uh, together to figure out how to fight this common enemy, the virus. The enemy is not another company or another group. The enemy has only been the virus and will still the virus. Subscribe to Radio Davos wherever you get your podcasts. Leave us a rating and review and join us on the World Economic Forum Podcast Club on Facebook. I'm Robin Pomeroy and asking what's next for COVID-19. Let me share a word of optimism. This is Radio Davos. The world is emerging from the depths of a paralyzing economic crisis, but recovery remains fragile and then even the last two years have demonstrated a simple but brutal truth. If we leave anyone behind, in the end, we leave everyone behind. United Nations Secretary General Antonio Guterres speaking on day one of the virtual Davos. For the second year running, the physical event usually held in the Swiss Alps has been forced online. But that hasn't stopped some of the world's most important people coming together to discuss the world's biggest challenges. If you're listening to this podcast in the same week as it lands, you can follow the action which runs through the 21st of January live at weform.org and on Catch Up afterwards. As well as Guterres on day one, we heard from Xi Jinping, the president of China, and Narendra Modi, Prime Minister of India. There'll be plenty more during the week. On this episode of Radio Davos, we're giving you the whole audio from one of the sessions on day one of the Davos Agenda, which answered a question that's on all of our lips. COVID-19, what's next? The session was presented by a friend of this podcast, Bloomberg TV host, Francine Lacroix. Hi everyone, I'm Francine Lacqua from Bloomberg, and we have the next 45 minutes to talk about that pandemic and, of course, what comes next. Now, we'd love all participants to join the conversation on social media using the hashtag Davos Agenda. Now, I'm delighted to be joined by Anthony Fauci, Chief Medical Advisor to the President of the United States, Stéphane Bancel, Chief Executive Officer of Moderna, and Lise Welder-Smith, Professor of Emerging Infectious Diseases, London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine, and Richard Hatchett, Chief Executive Officer, Coalition for Epidemic Preparedness and Innovations, CPI. Now, Dr. Fauci, let me start off with you. We have many questions to get through. Is 2022 actually the year that we go from pandemic to endemic? And does Omicron speed up the process, given its ability to spread and offer immunity through infection? Well, the answer is we do not know that. And I think we have to be openly honest about that. And when the word endemic is used in different contexts, when I talk about the pandemic, I put it into five phases, the truly pandemic phase where the whole world is really very negatively impacted as we are right now. Then there's the deceleration of the pandemic. Then there's control, there's elimination and eradication. I think if you look at the history of infectious diseases, 
we've only eradicated one infectious disease in man and that's smallpox. That's not gonna happen with this virus. Then there's elimination. Elimination means when you get rid of it in your own country, but it's somewhere not in your country, but it's there. For example, polio has been eliminated in the United States and many developing nations. So what's the next one up the ladder is control. Control means you have it present, but it is present at a level that does not disrupt society. And I think that's what most people feel when they talk about endemicity, where it is integrated into the broad range of infectious diseases that we experience. For example, the cold weather upper respiratory infections, the para-influenzas, the respiratory syncytial viruses, the rhinovirus, the adenoviruses. You want to get it at a level that doesn't disrupt society. That's the answer to your first question. That's my definition of what endemicity would mean, a non-disruptive presence without elimination. When you talk about whether or not Omicron, because it's a highly transmissible, but apparently not as pathogenic, for example, as Delta, I would hope that that's the case, but that would only be the case if we don't get another variant that eludes the immune response to the prior variant. For example, we were fortunate that Omicron, although it is highly transmissible, nonetheless is not as pathogenic, but the sheer volume of people who are getting infected overrides that rather less level of pathogenicity. So I really do think, uh, Francine, that it is an open question as to whether or not Omicron is going to be the live virus vaccination that everyone is hoping for, because you have such a great deal of variability with new variants emerging. Thank you, Dr. Fauci. Annalise, what, does it, what do you think actually Omicron means for new variants? And are we focused too much on calling it an endemic? Of course, it makes things easier and, and people see it as light, uh, you know, at the end of a difficult tunnel. It is indeed too early to call it endemic. And I totally agree with Dr. Fauci that what people want to hear is when can we resume our normal activities? Um, and Omicron will not be the last uh, variant. Um, clearly, with, with such high virus circulation as we are seeing now, there's a high probability that we will have another variant coming up. The question is where and when, and will it be more dangerous or less dangerous than the current um, variant of concerns? Where and when? I do think, you know, if you have vi high virus circulation that drives um, the risk of emergence. We've seen that for Alpha, that, uh, that emerged in the UK. We've seen that for Delta and in India, maybe, maybe less so for Omicron. Will it be more dangerous? Um, of course, we all hope it won't. And, and based on the um, evolutionary advantage to a virus, it is more likely it will attenuate. That means will further be associated with less severe disease. Just based on the mere fact that a virus has, has an advantage. If you have high transmissibility, but, do not, but you don't also kill your hosts at the same time. So we are all hoping for the, for the best case scenarios that the next one will be even further attenuated. That said, I think the world needs to be prepared also for the worst case scenario. And the worst case scenario would be that indeed there could be another viral recombination that would combine maybe the capacity to have high transmissibility 
and high mortality. That's the worst case. And I still think it is not so likely, but we have to consider all case scenarios. Thank you so much, Annelise. Stefan, where do you think we're on the pandemic? Well, I don't think I have anything to add to those two infectious experts. What I can tell you is from uh, the vaccine maker standpoint, what we are first very happy is that with such a, a change with Omicron and variants like Omicron, that the vaccines are holding very well. And uh, the third dose are proven to be very important. What we're doing right now is to prepare for what should the vaccine be uh, in the fall of 2022 and what should it contain. Uh, and our experts are working with public health experts like Dr. Fauci's team to figure this out because soon we're going to have to decide what goes into the vaccine for the fall of 22. The other piece we are doing, of course, is around manufacturing capacity. Uh, you know, in 2021, we shipped 807 million doses. We are very proud that around 25% went to middle-income and low-income countries. And we're continuing to ramp up. We have a lot of capacity coming online in, in Q1 this quarter, with a goal to be able to make two to three billion doses for this year. Uh, and the other piece we're working on is for 2023, is how do we make it possible from a societal standpoint that people want to be vaccinated? And we're trying to do this by preparing combinations. You know, we're working on the flu vaccine, we're working on the RSV vaccine, and our goal is to be able to have a single annual booster so that we don't have compliance issues where people don't want to get two to three shots a winter, but they get one dose where they get you know, a booster for corona and a booster for flu and RSV to make sure that people get their vaccines. So, Stefan, how close are we to that, actually? One single, you know, shot for various protection against COVID-19, but also flu. So the RSV program is now in phase three. The flu program is in phase two and soon in phase three, I hope, as soon as the second quarter of this year. So a best-case scenario will be uh, the fall of 23. As a best-case scenario, I don't think it will happen in every country, but we uh, believe it's possible to happen in some countries uh, next year. Mm -hmm. Richard, what do you see as, as the shape of this future endemic phase? I certainly don't disagree with anything that Annalise and Tony have said. And, and Stefan's uh, you know, reporting on moving towards a combined shot is certainly encouraging. I would say that when, when most people talk about a disease becoming endemic, what, what they really mean or what they're, what they're anticipating is a disease in equilibrium with the human population. Flu is endemic and we have annual epidemics as, as the virus evolves over time. And I, if I would hazard a guess in terms of the near-term dynamics of our interactions with COVID over the next few months, Omicron will sweep the world. It, it may hopefully sweep out other variants, you know, eliminate Delta, ideally. Uh, that, that wouldn't be completely unanticipated. And I do think that we will get to a point uh, this year where populations around the world either have been infected or had the benefits of vaccination, and, and we will get closer to that equilibrium with, with COVID. And we're likely, probably post-Omicron, many countries will have, you know, absent a new variant emerging, which it can do at any moment unpredictably, uh, we will have a, a, a quieter period with the virus. But I think the, the long-term view on COVID, we have to anticipate that COVID is going to behave more like flu um, in, in terms of it will continue to circulate, it will be around, people will get sick, and there will be continual evolution of the virus. And unpredictably, the, the virus appears to have the capacity to become essentially pandemic at any time. I mean, Omicron has moved very, very rapidly. It's behaving exactly like an acute pandemic, as Tony 
I think was describing. Um, and, and the virus is going to retain that capability in the future. And that's something that, you know, I, I think should be quite concerning to all of us. Thank you so much. I'm getting a lot of great questions from uh, everyone listening, so thank you for those. Dr. Fauci, this is basically a person writing in saying, what is the best case scenario as per the data prediction to achieve herd immunity combining the vaccine administration COVID infections? How difficult is it to actually calibrate something like that? Well, certainly the experience that we've had right now with COVID-19 and with SARS-CoV-2 is that that is going to be a very difficult calculation because when you talk about herd immunity uh, and you talk about the protection in the community where you combine those who've been vaccinated with durable protection and those who've been infected recovered with durable protection. However, when you have a virus in which the infection causes immunity that seems to wane rather quickly in addition, when you're dealing with a vaccine, that's a, a, an extraordinarily successful and protective vaccine where the immunity also wanes there. And you have then the third ingredient is a virus, which as was recently described by several of the panelists, myself included, which has this extraordinary capability of mutating, developing new variants, and the new variants can be eluding the immune response. And we're seeing that with Omicron, where Omicron fortunately is not as pathogenic inherently, but when you look at its protection, particularly against infection to a lesser degree against severe disease, it does elude the immune response. That's a different scenario than what we see when you have a virus like measles which does not really change very much and gives you almost lifelong immunity. And you have a measles vaccine, which does not give you anything changing, but allows you to have rather lifelong protection. That's the ideal herd immunity. We're dealing with a very complicated situation here that makes our classic definition of herd immunity very elusive. Thank you, Dr. Fauci. And Lisa, this is another question which we touched on, but basically, the, you know, this person is maybe turning it a little bit more political. Um, should we be worried about future variants? And this person writes in, you know, sometimes it feels like big pharma companies are taking advantage of the situation. Let me ask you, and we'll go to Stefan on this. Like, how can we bridge the divide between believers and non-believers? <laughs> because there are some inherent non-believers that no matter what you say are going to give you a real problem um, you know, one of the things that, that we, I believe, the entire world is facing, but we certainly are facing it in a very, very disconcerting way in the United States, is the amount of disinformation that is accompanying what should be a problem where everyone pulls together against the common enemy, which is the virus. We have disinformation that is entirely destructive to a comprehensive public health endeavor. And I'm not sure how we're going to counter that except by getting out as much correct information as we possibly can and use the social media in a positive way as opposed to in the somewhat destructive way that it is being used right now.
Annelise, your thoughts? And also there's a difference, right, between what virologists say. So looking at how worried we should be about these variants and sometimes what politicians say because they focus more on reopening the economy. Let me share a word of optimism. We are in a different space than we were two years ago. Two years ago, we had a population of 7.7 billion people with zero immunity to this virus. Now, more than 50% of the world's population has received two doses. And this is further strengthened with now the rapid also immunity being built up by natural infection. So we're in a different space and we now need to rethink and reevaluate some of our strategies. Stefan, like, first of all, there has been quite a lot of you know, questions on pharmaceutical companies, but also how do you encourage vaccination, right? Is there a way that companies such as Moderna need to communicate differently or, or put up data differently that encourages people to get vaccinated? Yeah, so the vaccination question is, of course, a very complicated one. I mean, many public health experts uh, and governments have tried really hard for now two years to get people to believe in vaccines. And of course, there's always a better job that we can all do, starting from the companies, in terms of explaining the science, explaining the side effects, explaining the long-term benefit and the risk-reward of getting a vaccine versus not getting a vaccine. Uh, I think a lot has been done, but clearly more, more can be done. Uh, but as Tony said, what is sad is all the misinformation that we are seeing every day uh, online, sometimes on TV, about the, the vaccine and what they do and what they don't do is, is, is really sad in today's world. Um, Stefan, can I ask you something specifically about some of these vaccines? And this person is also writing in, look, does a vaccine um, designed for alpha or delta also works well enough against Omicron? And how much faster have you been able to adapt some of these vaccines for every new variant? Sure. So the vaccines that are currently available, we're for the original strain. Um, they have not been adapted that I'm aware of to the alpha or to the beta strain, at least ours has not. Uh, as, as we've seen and shared the data very quickly when we had it, and we had a strong partnership with Dr. Fauci's team on the data generation in the fall uh, around Thanksgiving when Omicron appeared, what was seen is we saw an important drop of neutralizing antibody after two doses of the vaccine. But what we saw, thankfully, is after a third dose, there was very strong protection, which is why you saw around the world all the public health experts and governments urging people that had not been boosted to get a third dose to protect them, especially people at a high risk. What we're doing, and we started this the Wednesday before Thanksgiving, the day we saw the sequence, is developing an Omicron-specific vaccine. That vaccine is being finished to be made. It should be in a clinic uh, in the coming weeks. And we're hoping in the March timeframe, we should be able to have data to share with regulators to figure out uh, the next step forward. And that's always been a, a great partnership between public health experts, the regulators and vaccine makers to figure out what's the best path. As Tony said, for two years, we've all worked literally you know, seven days a week uh, together to figure out how to fight this common enemy the virus. The enemy is not another company or another group. The enemy has only been the virus and will stay the virus. Richard, a better, more broadly protective vaccine that would be effective against all future variants, of course, is what everyone's hoping for. How far away do you think we are from that goal? And what more is needed to make that vision a reality? I think the first thing that's needed to make the vision a reality is, is investment in the research and development. And, and Dr. Fauci and his team at NIAID have already begun to make investments. We've already begun to make investments. There's some private sector partners that are pursuing it. There's a lot of 
a lot of science that we still need to sort through to figure out how to, um, you know, capture the benefits that we have have seen. And I'll talk about that in a minute. Um, you know, in a in a specific vaccine, there's there was a really important proof of concept, biological proof of concept um, observation that was reported from Singapore. Uh, Lin Fa Wang is a scientist. Uh, uh, very prominent in the in the coronavirus research community, actually administered an RNA vaccine to uh, persons who had actually survived um, SARS-1 back in 2003 and 2004. They'd been infected with SARS. He administered a, a mRNA vaccine to them, the Pfizer vaccine, um, and then looked at their antibodies. And their anti they produced neutralizing antibodies, not only against SARS-1, against SARS-1, Two against MERS and against a number of other known animal coronaviruses. So that proves that the human immune response can generate neutralizing antibodies against coronaviruses broadly. How we capture that, put that into a vaccine is something that we're looking at in a, in a variety of different ways, a variety of different clinical approaches. I, I would say that that would be the holy grail because we really don't want to be in a position where we are chasing the new variants that are going to come when they will um, and unexpectedly and, and potentially with quite, even if they're milder as Omicron is, you know, the capability potentially to overwhelm healthcare systems. And, and so I, I think that needs to be, even as we support the vaccines that we've got, which as Tony says, are very, very good vaccines. They, they have done a great job, particularly in preventing uh, severe disease and, and death. But we we want to we don't want to be in a position where we're having to vaccinate everybody in the world every three or six months or even even annually, ideally. Yeah, and this is something the reports that also that you know if you do too many boosters, I'm not a virologist. Everybody thinks they're virologists. Very few uh, people are virologists, but you know there have been reports that actually if you boost too much, then it's counterproductive to the immune system. Richard, where are we on that? It's going to vary from you know, agent to agent, pathogen to pathogen. I'm not aware of any data that, you know, strongly suggests that the administration of the third dose or the fourth dose in any way weakens the immune response. What we're seeing is, is, is a very robust response with the administration of the booster doses. You're absolutely correct, Richard. There really is no evidence that if you boost, I mean, obviously, if you just overwhelm the immune system by just giving a person an antigen all the time, you get a, you know, a hyperactivity of immunity. But giving boosters at different times, there's no evidence that that's going to hinder it. One of the things that we've got to be careful of, and I really want to underscore what Richard said, we really don't want to get into the whack-a-mole approach towards every new variant where it comes up and you all of a sudden have to make a new, uh, a new uh, uh, booster against a particular and it gets up because you'll be chasing it forever. So that's the reason why one of the things we are really all pushing for is what Richard just mentioned, of finding out what the mechanisms are that induces a response to a commonality among all of the different real and potential variants that we're seeing and that can occur. And that's something that I think is a very, very important scientific goal to be able to do that. Once we get there, whether or not you have to intermittently boost someone with that, you use the word universal. I think before we talk about a universal coronavirus, we want to get a universal SARS-CoV-2 virus. <laughs> Let's take it one step at a time. Otherwise, I think we're, we're really going to be jumping ahead of ourselves. But 
But we really need to also point out to people that when you have a virus that has such a high degree of transmissibility, a very, very good vaccine may not necessarily prevent initial infection and may allow it to be very mild. But what you really want it to do is to prevent you from getting significant systemic disease. That would be a very, very successful pan SARS-CoV-2 uh, vaccine. Do you think, are you working on this better, more broadly protective vaccine to outdo them all? Or is, or is it something that we already have because it has been pretty efficient in tackling the variants that we've had so far? As Richard and Tony said, I mean, we definitely, all of us want, you know, better protection for people and the broader vaccines. There's a lot of work going on in, in academia and around the world. We are looking and partnering with a lot of people, but unfortunately, we are not there yet. But uh, uh, hopefully, we're making progress toward that direction. And Liz, what, what do you do differently in terms of maybe explaining some of these variants to the broader population. The key message remains the, the vaccines still really work very well against severe disease. And what we really want, the primary objective, is we want to avert deaths and protect healthcare systems. We're still an epidemic. Our healthcare systems are still overwhelmed. We still need to co continue our public health and social measures. But as, as population level immunity is increasing, both through natural infection and, and vaccines, we will now have a stronger hybrid immunity that will protect us against, against new variants. So even if we have more severe new variants, this population now is different. We do now have a cellular immunity from background exposure, be it vaccines or infection, that will protect us against more severe disease. I'm also getting a lot of questions from the U.S. or for the U.S. specifically. So why is the U.S. This is a, a broad but actually quite deep question. Is the U.S. a first world, you know, first world developed rich economy struggling to contain COVID? Well, that's a very good question. And I think some of the answer to that question is already already articulated by our panel members. One of the most important thing is that we have, you know, somewhat and I think it's it, it'd be perfectly honest somewhat of a, of a fractured and dis, disparate accessibility to healthcare in our nation. We have a great disparity. We have individuals who don't have access to care. We have higher degree of hospitalization and death in our minority populations as we do in the general population. But we also have, you know, what I mentioned earlier, and it's very disturbing, I believe, to all of us as public health officials and scientists, such a degree of pushback against regular, normal, easy to understand public health measures, reluctance to wear masks, reluctance to promote vaccination, reluctance to do kinds of public health measures that really we know if we all pull together as a society, we would be much, much better off. I mean, even at its best, this is such a formidable virus in its ability to do the things it's already done with multiple waves and multiple surges and multiple variants. But you make the virus have an advantage when you don't implement in a unified way all the very well-recognized public health measures, particularly the vaccines. And I think that's one of the reasons why it's so unfortunate for the entire world, but even for a rich country 
like the United States that supposedly was the best prepared country for a pandemic, we are among a handful of the countries that have actually suffered the most. When you look now at 65 million cases and the close to 900,000 deaths in our country, that is really truly unfortunate and something that we would have hoped would have been avoided. Dr. Fauci, why does the U.S. not have free testing, free tests? Well, we're getting there very, very quickly. In fact, the President Biden has made it very clear that he's put out by the end of this month a half a billion free tests. There will be now an online capability of getting online and having free tests sent to your home eight per household per month. And then we're talking about in the next months or so to have the capacity to get anywhere from 200 million to 500 million tests per month. Many of them will be free. Many of them will be reimbursable through insurance. So although, as the president honestly said, that we could have done better with free testing right now, we are really on the process of getting tests widely available and free for individuals in the United States. I'm getting quite a lot of questions on tests, which we'll come back to. And least, would it make sense to include vaccine education in schools, for example, uh, to try and curb some of the misinformation out there? Start with the medical schools. We need to educate a lot of doctors uh, and medical students and, and the scientific community because they are part of the of the conspiracy theories. So yes, education on, on vaccines and, and, and their benefit, and cost effectiveness, relative safety, the public health benefit needs to be strengthened around the globe. I have a lot of questions about uh, testing. So it works, PCR, rapid antigen, and their efficiency against Omicron and new variants. I don't know who would like to get us started on this. Richard, is it something that you look at? We uh, work with our partners at, at uh, an organization called FIND, which is the Foundation for Innovative New Diagnostics under the ACT Accelerator, the WHO-led effort. They, they are really leading on diagnostics and, and trying to get diagnostics distributed globally, just to come back to Tony's point, the importance of having rapid access to diagnostics is absolutely critical if, if citizens are going to govern their own behavior. One of the challenges with Omicron is there have been reports that the lateral flow tests are, you know, have a slightly lower sensitivity and thus are not capturing all of the positive cases. So you could have what are called false negative uh, lateral flow tests, but my understanding is they still work, but there is a lower sensitivity and those tests can be updated and, and I think are in the process of being updated. PCRs, of, of course, still work quite well. Access to PCRs can be challenging in many environments. I live in the UK, but I was in Bethesda over, over the holidays when Omicron was peaking and you know had what I think was a cold because I finally got a PCR that was negative, but it took me five days to, to gain access to a PCR, which in a period when you think you might have Omicron, um, you know, can, I mean, I was, I was behaving well and staying home, but not everybody would. And, and, and that could lead to further um, spread in the community. So diagnostics, access to diagnostics and updated diagnostics are absolutely critical to managing an infectious disease crisis. Big challenge, Francine, that we really do need to get we need highly specific, highly sensitive, easy to do at a point of care setting. We're not there yet. The PCR are highly sensitive, 
in fact, in some respects can be a bit misleading because you could recover from the acute phase and not have replication competent virus. And since the PCR doesn't tell you whether it's replication competent, it tells you you have nucleotide fragments there. On the other side of the coin, the antigen tests are less sensitive if you give just one. But if you can do it in a sequential way, they become cumulatively as sensitive as a PCR. But there are, there are a considerable numbers of false negatives when you have a less sensitive antigen test. So you have two ends of the spectrum. You have one that's highly sensitive, but as Richard said very appropriately, sometimes it's difficult to get, and you have to wait a few days sometimes to get the result. The question is, what do you do in the meantime? On the other hand, the easily accessible one has a lesser degree of sensitivity and can give you a false negative. So that's the reason why we're putting a major investment in trying to get those tests that are sensitive, specific, point of care, and easily accessible to virtually anyone who needs them. We're not there yet. Thank you, Dr. Fauci. And Liz, part of your research really focuses on modeling the reopening of travel based on virus transmission risks on flights and cruise ships. What are your predictions for 2022 in terms of disruption to travel? The short answer, I am optimistic. The longer answer is, um, you know, we, we, have, we have to balance the relative public health benefit of travel restrictions and border measures against its harm for trade and, and travel. Our travel restrictions and all these measures only really make sense if a country has a much lower incidence and wants to protect itself from importation from a higher incidence. But as we are now two years ahead, we will, we will get to an equilibrium where most countries will have similar incidents, but we are not there yet. We still have an absolutely inequitable distribution of, of vaccines, and this drives all these problems with travel. I do believe that we, that we need to apply uh, and that, that the current Omicron wave should be uh, a stimulus to rethink some of our travel restrictions and remodel it, uh, really trying to minimize the very harmful quarantine, that's the most painful part, is, uh, versus maybe a higher frequency of testing and, and, and travel bubbles, etc. Et I think we need to be creative now that we have Omicron to really rethink what, is the, what has the highest public health impact without harming trade and travel. Thank you, Anlisa. I'm getting a lot of questions on vaccine equity. Stefan, where are we on vaccine solidarity so far? It feels like we failed. Is 2022 going to be more of a balance? I think so. And I think, and Richard and I were discussing this a few, actually last week. Uh, I think things really change in the fall. It's tough to say precisely when, but we clearly went from a time where there was clearly a big issue to get vaccine to low-income country. There's just not enough vaccine, as you know, uh, mRNA technology was a new technology, and so there was no manufacturing capacity idle waiting for a pandemic. And so everything has to be built and increased by the month and the quarter. If you look at what the industry has done, I think now it's more than a billion dollars, you know, made across the planet on a monthly basis, which is just remarkable. Just to give order of magnitude, the entire flu uh, production on an annual basis is around 500 million doses. So when you have a billion dollars for a month, it's quite remarkable. And so what you saw in um, the, the fall time frame is starting actually to have you know, product in a warehouse, which is the first time we had this happen during the pandemic, which is 
as you can imagine, every time a product was approved, it would be on a truck going somewhere. Uh, but we started to have warehouse space issues because the issue then became uh, the ability of countries to get the vaccine from a storage standpoint, from a delivery standpoint. You know, in the November, uh, December timeframe, any given day, we had 50 to 100 million doses waiting to be shipped to COVAX because there was a lot of work being done with different countries. And another data point, which is actually from two weeks ago, uh, which is a good sign for where the world is heading, is the African Union uh, indicated to us that they do not want the vaccine that we had reserved for them for the second quarter of this year. Uh, uh, and so I think it's just a good confirmation that thankfully uh, vaccines are getting to the entire planet. I think now what I'm hearing from colleagues on the ground is the issue in low-income countries, how do we get those in arms uh, in terms of warehouse, uh, medical professionals? And I think the rich country, the high-income country, need to do more to help low-income countries uh, in terms of getting doses in arms, because I don't think the problem is access to those anymore. That was last year's problem. I think it's really getting them in arms, and I think we should be able to do more. Richard, I mean, do you agree, first of all, are you optimistic about vaccine distribution? And, you know, if, if we're not aiming for a temporary waiver of intellectual property, then what would be the best way to actually ensure that there's vaccine distribution in lower income countries? Let me celebrate an important milestone that was was passed actually on Saturday. Um, COVAX, which is the, the CEPI and Gavi and WHO and UNICEF, led effort to distribute vaccines globally, particularly to lower middle and low income countries, uh, passed the threshold of having delivered to countries a, a billion doses. And I, I think it, it it speaks to the point that, that Stefan was making. The, the product, we've now produced over 11 billion doses of vaccine since the beginning of the pandemic. Nine billion doses have been administered. Um, the the supply constraints that dominated the the situation in 2021 and were a, a huge problem, a heartbreaking problem, have have eased. And um, where supply was the major challenge for um, 2021, I think, as Stefan is saying, the the last mile is going to be the major challenge for 2022. And you know, the the major thing that the world is going to need to do to make vaccine available to everyone who wants it and make make both, do, you know, primary vaccination and booster doses available to everyone in the world who wants it, which I think is an achievable goal in 2022 with the vaccine production that we have, um, is helping countries, particularly the, the less well-resourced countries, um, build their capabilities to do mass vaccination programs and to deliver vaccine to their populations um, at speed. There's been a lot of focus on what was not, hasn't been accomplished and, and, the, and the equity gap that has emerged. And that is real. And, and that gives us plenty of opportunity to improve for the future. But there hasn't been, a, I don't think there's been enough focus on what has been accomplished. I mean, HIV medications, effective HIV medications, there was a gap of a decade before those became widely available um, in many parts of the world in Africa. I mean, Tony led the effort on PEPFAR, um, which really was game-changing for um, you know, many, many African countries in, in terms of making those vaccines available. In the last pandemic, after 13 months of a vaccine donation program, only 78 million doses delivered 
outside of, of the of the wealthy countries. Uh, this time, 13 months in, we, we've just delivered our billionth dose, and those numbers are going to continue, um, you know, at, at, at a very substantial pace as we go into 2022. So um, you, you mentioned the TRIPS waiver. Uh, I think there's an important discussion about how do we achieve uh, a, a more globally, more equitably distributed manufacturing capacity. Um, and, and many, many partners, governments, financing institutions, private sector partners, I mean, Stefan has, has announced that, that Moderna will be building facilities in Africa and elsewhere, um, you know, are working on this. And, and, I, and I think, you know, a TRIPS waiver may have a role in that, but there are other paths up that hill too. And I, and I think we really need to explore all of them. I don't think it's necessary right now in terms of making vaccine available. I think it's the last mile challenges. Thank you, Richard. Dr. Fauci, we talk a lot about the new normal. And how do you define the new normal? So how do you see us, you know, wearing masks, traveling, um, getting, how often will we get vaccinated? And does it make sense, for example, getting tested every week if it's a, you know, a, a virus or a COVID-19 that is maybe less deadly than the previous one? Again, it is very difficult to predict uh, what a new normal is going to be until we get ourselves out of this pandemic phase that we're in. But a new normal, I believe, will have a much, much greater attention to the capability of respiratory viruses to spread as they do. I think their new normal will be, I hope, a greater degree of interconnectivity and solidarity throughout the world when we are talking about the possibility of pandemics. I don't think people are going to be walking around with masks all the time. I mean, I think that that's very much out of the question. That's not going to be something that the world will accept as being normal. But I think a, a normal will be a little bit, uh, a Francine, related to your original question of me of what does endemicity mean? And if endemicity means such a low level of infection that, as Richard and others have said, you're going to get people who are going to be sick. It's not going to be that you're going to eliminate this disease completely. We're not going to do that. But hopefully it will be at such a low level that it doesn't disrupt our normal social, economic, and other interactions with each other. To me, that's what the new normal is. I hope the new normal also includes a real strong corporate memory of what pandemics can do. So we don't just go on when we get this under control, forgetting how we have to do better in both the scientific preparedness, the public health preparedness, and the public health response. If it were not for the decades of investment in basic and clinical research that antedated this pandemic, we would never have been able to hit the ground running and within such a very short period of time, get a highly effective and safe vaccine that goes into the arms of individuals 11 months after the virus was first identified and put on the public database. Dr. Fauci, are we advancing towards some kind of global, you know, financial architecture to be able to fund pandemic preparedness for the preparation and response to the next one? Well, again, when you talk about pandemic preparedness, there are certain aspects of pandemic preparedness. One is scientific and one is public health. And I think that the kinds of things that Richard has been doing uh, in, you know, in collaboration with other organizations is really part of the public health preparedness that links up very closely 
to the scientific preparedness of getting better platforms, better image and design, the ability to get production literally within a very fraction of the amount of time that it takes to go from the recognition of a new pathogen to the ability to get vaccine. And one of the things that Stefan mentioned is to get a global production capacity so that you don't have to wait until hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people die before you can get vaccines out. That's where we should be heading. We have a minute and a half left. So Stefan, what are you optimistic that we'll do better in the next pandemic? And what are you worried about that we won't learn from? Yeah, so I'm optimistic. I mean, I'm not an entrepreneur, so I'm optimistic by nature, but I'm optimistic that what is being done today uh, is going to help tremendously as, you know, we're working with Dr. Fauci's team, we're working with Richard to work on many more pathogens that we know. The entire scientific community has known for years that there's a list of around 20-ish pathogens that are at risk for which we need vaccines. You know, we have a Zika vaccine in phase two uh, that we collaborated with Barda. We're working on a Nipah vaccine. Those are viruses that not everybody has heard of. Because we need to have the data of what dose, what construct from a genetic standpoint is required, and at what dose, so that if a new pathogen emerge of that family, we can very quickly move into phase three. I think we could potentially shave up to six months versus what we are able to do uh, in 2020, which, as Tony said, was already a world record uh, by any stretch. The piece is manufacturing. If you look in 2020, we were able to ship 20 million doses to the U.S. government when the vaccine was authorized. That is not a lot. But because this year we're going to have, you know, two to three billion doses of capacity in the six-month time frame, which is what I believe it will take us to get authorization of such a vaccine, if all the work has been done before in preclinical and clinic, you could have 1.5 billion doses available in six months. And it's just from Moderna. And then you had over, over platform, I think it should be a much bigger number. So I think we have all the means to do that. And we're investing heavily also in plants in Canada, in Australia, in, in Africa, to be able to have a very decentralized manufacturing network. Great, thank you, Stefan. And Lise, in 45 seconds, what are you most optimistic about? Travel will resume. Um, I think we will have a better summer. Um, we need to respond to the pandemic preparedness. In addition to biotechnological solutions, we need better approaches to communication, to, um, to averting misinformation. And really social science should be, I know all pandemic preparedness should now be better embedded in social science. Thank you so much, Richard. Um, I, I, I think we have within reach, if, if we work towards it, the ability to make vaccine available to everyone in the world who wants it in 2022, and we should strive to achieve that. I also think to, to some of the points that, that Annalise, Tony, and Stefan have made, that um, there are many, many lessons to be learned from the response to COVID that will inform how we go forward and think about pandemic preparedness not just for COVID or coronaviruses, but for other threats. And we need to capture that, institutionalize it, and we need to have the long view, even while we address the near-term problems of COVID. Great. Thank you, Dr. Fauci. Maybe the last 45 seconds to you. With hindsight, what should we have done differently? One thing. Well, I think there are several things we should have done differently. I think we should have had a much more coordinated global response, as I've said so many times a global pandemic requires a global response. And we have to keep in mind the issue of equity all the time, because you can't have a situation where you have virus circulating freely in one part of the world. One, because we have, a, I think, almost a moral obligation 
for the lower and middle income countries to make sure that doesn't happen. But also it's for one's own self-interest because as long as you have virus anywhere circulating freely, you're gonna get virus that will ultimately impact all of us. We've got to do it as a global community. That's what I think is such an important lesson. Anthony Fauci, director of the US National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases. You also heard Annalise Wilder-Smith, professor of emerging infectious diseases at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. Richard Hatchett, chief executive officer of the Coalition for Epidemic Preparedness and Innovations, CEPI. Stéphane Boncel, chief executive officer of Moderna. And the host, Francine Lacroix, editor-at-large and presenter at Bloomberg Television. You can watch that event and all the other action at the Davos Agenda 2022 on our website, weforum.org. Meanwhile, please subscribe to Radio Davos wherever you get your podcasts, leave us a rating or a review, and join the conversation on the World Economic Forum Podcast Club on Facebook. This episode of Radio Davos was presented by me, Robin Pomeroy, with thanks to Alex Court and Gail Markovitz. Studio production was by Gareth Nolan. We'll be back very soon, but for now, thanks to you for listening, and goodbye.